Good morning. So we are in our last sermon uh, for our work series. So we've been covering the topic of work and rest. Um, and we have talked about uh, the purpose of work. And we've talked about the fall of work. And then today we are going to finish and we're going to talk about the redemption of work or the gospel and uh, and work. And so we're going to look at three things as we talk about the gospel and work. Um, we are going to look at the story of the gospel. Um, we need to understand the story of the gospel for understand how work interacts with it. So the story of the gospel. We're going to look at a couple implications that the gospel has on our work. And then um, we're going to end, um, and we're going to look practically at three different vocations, three different jobs, and we're going to talk about how does the gospel inform practically um, some ways that that we work. Um, and so, and what we're what we're going to do at the end, I want to kind of prime the pump a little bit for what we're going to do at the end, because um, I want you to be praying. I want you to even as we're as I'm preaching, I want the Lord to be stirring in your heart, um, kind of what we're leading. But at the end, what I want to do is I want to um, I want to commission. Um, those that uh, that would desire to their work to see it uh, as what God has intended, and so um, at the very end, I'll, I'll put up an email. But if you would just grab a card, because um, taking notes in the sermon is really going to be helpful for that. Um, because I'm going to ask that those that want that would write down my email and actually flush that out and pray through that, what that means in their life, um, and that they would have an opportunity to stand as the Lord leads now. And so I just want to prime that pump so that you would already be praying, already asking the Lord what those what those mean for you and what it means to um, to pr- approach your work differently. So, um, first, let's look at the story of the gospel, the story of the gospel. Um, and as we go into that, uh, thinking about it, it, it led me to, uh, to kind of ask questions. Any, anybody have a favorite uh, park that they go to as far as, like, Adventure Park or Disney or, you know, everybody kind of has their own thing and everybody has their own, like, favorite ride that they like. You know, they're like, I love this ride. Um, I remember for me, I'm from Kansas City, and so I didn't get to grow up near all these awesome theme parks. Uh, We had to make long trips down to Florida to go to them. And uh, I remember my mom drove me down, and we went to uh, Islands of Adventure, and we got to go on the Spider-Man ride. Has anybody gone on the Spider-Man ride? And we know what I'm talking about? Okay. Thank you. I'm not alone. Uh, and I loved Spider-Man as a kid. Like, I watched Spider-Man all the time, and so he was like my, you know, my, my hero that I loved watching. And so, um, when we get to go on a Spider-Man ride, it was really cool. And, and what makes the Spider-Man ride really uh, interesting is that you put on these 3D glasses, right? So you put on these glasses, and then you sit in a car, and uh, and the car's moving, but then all you have these glasses that are pretty much tinting everything that you see. And so you have these characters that come to life, and it's filled with all the classic Spider-Man villains that are jumping around and moving. And I remember as a little kid sitting in this car, having these 3D glasses, and almost jumping out of my seat when the Statue of Liberty comes falling at my head, you know? And I'm like trying to like get out of the way um and it, and it makes the ride a blast um and, and a big part of it is because you have these glasses on and it, it changes how you see and that you're not really able to fully see like what is reality and what's just an illusion what's actually coming towards me there's there's literally fire so i am really warm that's not just an illusion that's not something i'm seeing you know like there's water and so it's, it's these glasses kind of make it uh difficult for you to kind of discern what's real and what's true. And, and as we approach work and understanding, it's important that we, we know that all of us have a worldview. All of us have a set of lenses or a set of glasses through which we see the world. And they will help us to either make sense of what is true and what is real, or they will aid in our deception about believing what is false and what is a lie. And so a worldview 
uh, a worldview is uh, uh, a worldview is the beliefs, principles, and stories that inform, guide, and color everything that we see and we do. And so a worldview is affected by all kinds of different things, right? Your worldview is affected by where you grew up, the city that you grew up in. It's, it's colored by the family that you've had, whether you're the middle sibling, the youngest sibling, the oldest sibling. It's, it's affected by the friends that you've had. Um, but most importantly, your worldview and the way that you make sense of, of the world around you is affected by how you understand who God is. How you understand who God is and, and what God's relationship with this world is matters greatly, and it affects how you interact with your work, and it affects how you interact with all of your life. So um, we want to look at um, what the story of the gospel is um, and how it informs and guides our work. So if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? Um, and you were, you know, someone would come up to you and say, so tell me, what is the gospel? Um, what I would have said when I first became a Christian, which is, true um, is I would have given a, a micro understanding. So there's two two perspectives on the gospel. There's the two-chapter view, and then there's a four-chapter view, or a, a micro view of the gospel and a macro view of the gospel. And so the micro view of the gospel, the two-chapter part of the gospel, it says that there are two parts. Namely, there's a problem and there's a solution, right? So the problem is that we have sinned. Right is that the nature of humanity is that we are sinned, we are fallen, we're broken, and we have broken relationship with a holy God, and because of that, we're separated from him. Is that we, we aren't born into this relationship, and so we're born broken. So what's the solution? If that's the problem that all of us have as individuals, is that we need this relationship with God, we're broken from it. Well, the solution is that God has sent his son, Jesus. God has sent Christ into the world so that he would take the burden and the penalty that we are due and that we owe and that he would satisfy that so that through placing our faith, through repentance and placing our faith in Christ, we would be brought back into a relationship with God and that we would be with him forever. That when we die, we would go to be in heaven with him and that we would dwell with him. So that's true, right? I think all of us would say, yes, that is true. I've heard that probably a thousand times. Um, and so we, we know that that's true. But if we stop at that, if that is the only understanding of the gospel that we have, then oftentimes the gospel, the, what happens is the gospel becomes about us. The gospel becomes man-centered, and it becomes simply about us being saved. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the four-chapter view of the gospel and, and show how it balances. Because if you simply understand the two, and that's the only part of the gospel you understand, then you will begin to think that what the purpose of salvation is, is for you to wait while God blows up this world like Luke Skywalker does the Death Star and be like, all right, I'm out of here, you know? And so you will just bide your time and wait on this world and seek to escape from it rather than engage in it. And so the four-part chapter of the gospel, the, the macro understanding, the, the big worldview of the gospel is seen in four different things. It's seen in the fall. Uh, it's seen in creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So say that again, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's so important that we get this, we get this, um, because this is what makes sense and guides our lives and how and why we work. Um, so let's look at that and, and uh, answer some of the questions. So creation, creation answers the questions, who made the world? Why did he make it? And what condition was it made in? Now, we believe that the God of the Bible is the one that made the world and everything in it. He alone created 
that he is supreme in his power and his goodness. And that he created the world to glorify himself. God created the world that he might put himself on display. God is the only person that can put himself on display and it's not a selfish act. In fact, God is the very definition of goodness. And so when he glorifies himself, it is the most selfless act that he can do. So he created everything to glorify himself. And everything that God created was good. God doesn't create crud. Instead, God creates masterpieces and beauty and perfection. And so God created and everything was good and it flourished as it was intended to. Now, why is understanding creation important for our work? Well, it's, it's important for a variety of different reasons. First, it means that our work is good. That God created our work and God created it good. And therefore, our work is to be sought after. Work is part of what makes a meaningful life and so we aren't to seek to escape from it or to complain about it or to run away from it. Instead, we are to engage with work. We are to realize that it's something that is good, that God has intended and purposed. It, it means that the, the purpose of our work isn't to make much of ourselves. We talked about this last week, that the Tower of Babel, they were seeking to make a name for themselves in their work. If everything is made to glorify God, then your work isn't about you. Your work is to make much of God, is to put him on display in and through what you do. Creation informs that this is what work's purpose is. Now, it also means, creation also means that through God, we can find contentment in our work. Since God created work and intended it, there is not a job that God didn't create or intend, and so we can find contentment. We can find contentment in the giftings and the abilities that God has given us when we know that that is where God has put us and placed us. Every job has a place within God's economy within God's kingdom. So we see that creation informs our work. Now the fall. The fall answers the questions, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with this world? And what are sin's effects? What is primarily wrong with us and with this world is our separation from God because of sin. Sin entered through our rebellion against God's rule and his lordship. Sin is seen in our desire to be lord of our own lives. You want to understand sin? It's when we, re- when we rebel against God's good reign and rule and we instead declare that we know better than him and that we are better guides, better masters, better managers of our own life and that we refuse to listen to him, we refuse to submit to him. It's the height of arrogance and of pride, the epitome of sin. Sin is not just something that we do, but it comes directly from our heart. You see, we are sinful not just because of the choices that we make, but we are born sinful. Our very nature is sinful. Our heart is sinful, and therefore the choices that we make are sinful. Since sin isn't something that we simply do, but is actually part of our heart, it means that we can't work to fix ourselves. Because work isn't going to undo our nature. Instead, we need a new, nature, a new nature. We need a new heart, since everything we do is tainted because of sin's effect on our heart. Now, what are the effects of sin? Sin separates. That's a very baseline. Sin separates because it is arrogant, it is selfish, it insists on its own way. And so the nature of sin is that it divides. It, it creates um, pain and ruin. And so we see sin separates in four different ways. Sin separates us from God. We see in the first, the very beginning, is that it, it hinders us from being in relationship with God. We are kicked out of the perfect garden and fellowship with God. 
sin separates us from others, the reason that relationships are difficult, the reason that they're strenuous and hard is because sin makes it difficult. It separates us from creation and even leads to work being cursed. Right? God cursed the ground because of our sin. And sin even hinders us from knowing ourselves. Sin makes it like a, a funny mirror. We're not able to perceive or understand who we really are and that we think that we're stronger or weaker than we actually are. Sin separates. It divides. Now, how does the fall inform our work? Right? What does the fall say about how we work in this world? Well, the fall uh, helps us understand that no matter how good our work is, no matter what you do or how good of a cause you're devoted to, it's not ultimately going to save the world. Right? That there's no um, social justice cause, that there's no amount of, of counseling or loving or caring that's going to ultimately save and redeem this world since it's sin and, and the problem is only seen in God. And, and his, or the problem is only solved in God. He alone is the one that can come in and to change. So we, we have a healthy perspective that we approach work, that our work is important, but ultimately it's not going to redeem and save fully. The, um, it also means that there's not a perfect job that's going to fully satisfy your heart and your life. And this is, this is a lie that we believe oftentimes, and it's ingrained in high school, is that we think that ultimately if I just have the perfect job, then I'll have the good income, and then my life will be complete. And what the fall means is that what you need is not the perfect job. You need the perfect Savior. And so ultimately there's no job that you're going to get that's going to fully satisfy and give you the ultimate fulfillment that you're longing for. What the fall also does is it prepares us for the futility and the, the pointlessness and the frustration that work often has. It means that work will be at times fruitless. And one of the things that really stuck out for me as I was thinking about that is that we are all going to be able to envision more than we can actually do with our work. When you are devoted and you care deeply about your work, you're passionate about it, there are plans and visions and goals and things that you want to do. And the fall says that no matter... No matter how much you try and, and all the labor you have, that ultimately because of sin, it's going to fall f- short of what it could always be to what you could envision and what you could dream. So it, understanding the fall helps us actually have a healthy approach to work. It means that our work isn't ultimately going to save us or this world, but it, it, and it means that when we approach it, we have a healthy expectation, knowing that our work is good, that it is meaningful, that it can aid, but that it is also hindered and broken because of sin in this world, in us, and others. Now, we look at redemption. Redemption answers the questions. Uh, it says, how can I be saved from my sin? And how is God working in the world to undo the effects of sin? Redeeming is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange uh, for payment or clearing a debt. Since sin has entered the world, God has been buying back and healing his creation. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God reversed and is reversing the effects of sin in us and this world through his Son's death on a cross and resurrection from the dead. Jesus took the debt the curse and the penalty the guilty sinners deserve in order that we would be forgiven and changed. We are redeemed out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are saved not to simply escape this world, but we are saved to partner with God 
and his renewal of it. And this makes such a difference. When, so how does, how does work practically, how does redemption affect our work? Redemption affects our work because we realize that we are partnering with God, that we are co-laborers with God to seek the renewal of his good world. That God isn't simply going to abandon his creation, but instead he is renewing it. That yes, there is a day in which he will bring a new heaven and a new earth, but he will purge what is evil and what is good remains. Just as he has redeemed us, we, we now, we have an old man and a new man. And we hold that when that day comes, the old man will fall away. The sin that we struggle with, the, the enemy that, that seeks to devour us, all that will pass. And what is good will remain. We believe that about our work as well. That what God is using us to aid in renewing and bringing healing and wholeness to, it will, it will last. It will endure. Our work has eternal implications. It really does matter. We get to partner with what Christ taught us to pray. He said, we are to pray that our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to bring every area of our lives under the lordship of Christ. Every area of our work is to, is to be seen in submission to him. So we see how redemption affects our work. The last one that we'll talk about is consummation. Uh, consummation answers the questions, how will our world end? And will we ever be free from evil? Is there an eternity? And if so, what's it like? We believe that the world will end with a new beginning. That God will come finally and fully and he will judge and put an end to evil. That all those who refuse to trust in Christ will be eternally separated from God in hell. That there will no longer be any crying, any sorrow, any suffering, any pain, any tears. That God will take death and God will take pain and he will throw it away. That God will come and that heaven and earth will meet once more. And so we believe that there will be a physical future That we aren't going to simply be in heaven floating around like ghosts, but instead we will live in a physical world where we will touch, where we will know and be known, where we will engage with God and with people. Man, what a glorious day that we will now, what the consummation means is there will be a time where we will be free from sin and we will have perfect fellowship with God. It means that the goals and desires when we are Christians, the true desires of our heart will finally and fully be satisfied as we will see God for who he is. And we will be known fully, even as we are fully known. So how does this, how does consummation, how does it affect our work practically? Well, consummation brings comfort and hope to our work. See, when we realize that God is ultimately going to finish what he started, that ultimately our work is going to be completed, it brings hope. It brings comfort. Because when you really are giving your life to something that matters, when you want to see your work make a difference in this world, and you realize that it's going to fall short of what you had hoped for, that, that at the end of it, that there's more that still could be done. That's going to that's gonna lead to despair, and it's going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead to wondering if this is even worth my time. Man, consummation, what it says, it says that your labor is not in vain. That God will finish what you can never finish. That God will come in and renew and redeem fully and wholly what you only got to see a piece of. And so therefore, it leads us to engage our work with hope, and also comforts us when work is disappointing, when work is hard, when we don't see the, the, the fruition of what we had hoped for and dreamed for. It's good news, isn't it? 
knowing God's story, understanding the whole story, the four-part gospel, helps us not simply to disengage from the world, but it helps us to partner with God and engage in the world and seeking its transformation. Uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, some conservative Christians think the think of the story of salvation as the fall, redemption, heaven. In this narrative, the purpose of redemption is escape from this world. Only saved people have anything of value, while unbelieving people in the world are seen as blind and bad. If, however, the story of salvation is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, then things look different. In this narrative, non-Christians are seen as created in the image of God and given much wisdom and greatness within them. Looking at Psalm 8. Even though the image is defaced and defiled, Moreover, the purpose of redemption is not to escape the world, but to renew it. It is about the coming of God's kingdom to renew all things. If we lose the emphasis on conversion, we lose the power of the gospel for personal transformation. We will not work sacrificially and joyfully for justice. On the other hand, if we lose the emphasis on the corporate, on the kingdom, we lose the power of the gospel for cultural transformation. And so I hope you see that the gospel is both, that we, that we have to be born again, that we have to receive Christ, that we have to have the Holy Spirit ingrained in us, that what it means to, to partner with God and his work of the gospel is mean to sh- share the gospel with your workers, share the gospel with the people that you're at work with. And then as they are coming to know Christ and as they grow up in that, that you partner together to see God's kingdom more and more on this earth as it is in heaven. It's, it's corporate, it's both. And we need both to understand how we are to engage in this world. So let's look at now, what are a couple implications of the gospel on work? Um, I want to look at two things. Um, first, seeing that all work is holy to God and also that work is worship. Um, the first one is there's, there's what's called a sacred-secular divide. Um, times where we think that certain work is holy and other work is common or, or secular. Um, I grew up going to summer camps as a, as a youth, as a kid. And so, I don't know about you, if you ever went to a summer camp, but all my summer camps, they had some, like, they're Baptists, so they had altar calls. You know, like, you're coming to the altar, you're going to give your life to Jesus, um, which is awesome. You know, at times it serves uh, serves a pretty good purpose. Um, but then they also had another altar call. You know, so you had the, the come to Jesus altar call, and then you had to, like, if you're really holy, you're going to devote your life to full-time ministry. And so you had the second altar call where people were like, listen, like, if you're really Really serious about this thing that you're gonna like you're gonna give your whole life and you're gonna like engage in full-time ministry um and so i remember sitting there and thinking like man well i've i've received christ but like i really want to give god everything like i really want to be all in and so i guess i'll like i'll go forward and be in full-time ministry and then like a couple years later like the lord unpacked that for me and it was like well hold on the only problem with that is the bible doesn't teach that like you know tough things when you teach things the bible don't talk doesn't talk about and so the bible instructs and says that that there is no such thing as someone that's a Christian that's in part-time ministry. The Bible knows no such thing as someone that, that says, well, listen, you're in, you're in full-time ministry and I'm in part-time ministry, or, or you, you do a holy job and I do a secular job. No, there is no such thing as that. Every single job is holy unto God. Every single job that you work, your vocation, your calling is a ministry to God. You are in full-time ministry as a Christian. The moment you come to know Christ, God has given you a ministry of reconciliation. And you are to be using that to love and serve others and to, and to glorify Him. What it means to minister is it literally means to serve. A minister is a servant. And so what we need to understand is that you're, you in your job are to be serving others. And so 
what does that look like? Do you, do you see your job as a ministry rather than just a means to get a paycheck? Are you approaching as a way in which you can serve others, in which you can glorify God, in which you can draw them closer to Him? Martin, uh, Martin Luther understood this idea um, well. He wrote um, that the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ on wit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All, our work, all works are measured before God by faith alone. And so what this means is that God has given all of us different callings, different abilities, different giftings and passions. Your, God has called you to full-time ministry, but where and what does it look like? God is not, they are not the holy few that are called to be pastors and teachers and evangelists. No, not at all. In fact, when you look in Ephesians 4, what it says, it says that God has given gifts and called certain people to those tasks in order that they might equip others to do their full-time work of ministry. We all are employed in full-time ministry. The question is where and question is why. It doesn't matter what we do primarily. Primarily what matters is why we are doing it and who we are doing it to. When we understand that our work is for God and that we are doing it unto Him, it then becomes a ministry. It becomes a way in which we are able to serve and to love others. Do you understand that Luther had this, this awesome idea, um, and it's so biblical, but he says, we, we pray for God to provide for us in our lives, right? All the time. We pray, God, provide this job for me or provide this house or provide this spouse or provide this food. Or, and we're constantly praying for God's providential care in our life. How is it that God often answers our prayers? Think about, just take, for example, Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, right? He says that we should ask God to provide for our food. He says, you know, pray and ask. How is it that God answers that prayer? Right? God answers that prayer through a farmer and through those that work on his farm or through a rancher and those that work on his ranch. And then he works also through the drivers that, that deliver the meats or deliver the, the produce. Then he also works through those that are grocers and those that are cashiers and those that are even baggers. God works through all these different jobs and all these different areas to serve you and to provide for your life. Do you see the chain that your job is connected with to love and to serve other people? Our job is to be an expression of loving our neighbor as ourself. Do you see it like that? Do you see it as a way in which you were able to love your neighbor in a way that you were able to serve and build up others as a part of God's care? When you understand that your work is partnering with God's work, that you and your job are actually sometimes the very hand or face of God to someone else, it brings renewed purpose and passion for doing what you do with excellence, with care. There is no such thing as a sacred and secular divide. There are no holy and unholy positions, but rather all of it is to be ministry to God. The next implication that we see about the gospel is understanding work as worship, work as a means through which we demonstrate our worship unto God. Romans 12.1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is worship? What is worship? Webster's Dictionary, we're going to bust out the old school, 1828, 
says, Worship is to honor with extravagant love. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. What this means is that worship isn't primarily singing a song or coming to church or giving money. While those are expressions of worship, worship is primarily an attitude of our heart that declares what we find worthy, what we find valuable and important and meaningful in our life. Worship isn't to be segmented in different parts of our life. I'm coming to worship or I'm going to worship on Wednesday or Sunday or small group. No, worship is instead a lifestyle in which all of our life is given unto God as an act of love, as an act of service. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 1 Corinthians 10.31 it says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Notice here, he says that you are doing, whatever you're doing, you're doing it for Christ. The person that you are doing, whatever you're doing, is unto him. It's in his name. When you work, you are working to glorify God, not build a reputation for yourself. It's about advancing his kingdom, his name, his purposes in this world, not our own. And he says, listen, even in the most mundane tasks, that there is a way that you can eat and drink that is worshipful, and there's a way that you can eat and drink that's unworshipful. Let me get really practical. There's a way that you can come to church that's worshipful, and there's a way that you can come to church that's unworshipful. There's a way that you can preach a sermon that's worshipful, and there's a way that you can preach a sermon that's unworshipful. Worship can't be categorized. It can't be segmented into parts of our life. But instead, worship is demonstrated in the whole and the totality of everything that we do. And what we say and how we act and how we interact with others, everything is in our life is declaring what we find to be worthy, what we find to be important and valuable. Work is just an opportunity for us to declare in another part of our life what we find to be ultimately valuable and satisfying and important. The motive for worship. The motive for worship is love for God. Right? Why do we worship? We worship because we love God and we're thankful for what he's done for us. You see it in Colossians 3.7. He says, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You will worship when you have fully meditated and grasped and understood what it is that God has done for you, when you see the gospel and you realize that Christ gave all of his life for you, that he didn't hold back certain segments or different parts, but instead on the cross he gave all of himself, when you meditate on that, not when you just understand that, but when the Holy Spirit applies that. Because we can, we can articulate that, we can tell people that, but until the Holy Spirit makes that alive to you, until that is the very center and it drops into the core of your heart, you'll begin and you, you won't live for those things that matter. But when that clicks, when it really clicks that Christ gave you all of himself and that he desires for you to give all of yourself to him, it will, you will see work and you'll begin to rejoice in it. Right? Because you will be able to rejoice in, its, in the fact that it is one more area where you can glorify the God that loves you and the God that has saved you and the God that wants to use you. You will see your work as an opportunity to worship. It means that what we do with our bodies, how we use our language, being generous with our resources, respecting our bosses, refusing to complain to our coworkers, they're all acts and declarations of worship when they're done unto the Lord. 
Delison Kennebrew, uh, in her article asking, what is true worship? She says this. True worship, in other words, is defined by the priority we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. True worship is a matter of the heart expressed through a lifestyle of holiness. Thus, if your lifestyle does not express the beauty of holiness through an extravagant or exaggerated love for God, and you do not live in extreme or excessive submission to God, then I invite you to make worship a non-negotiable priority in your life. Do you worship? What are you worshiping? Do you see your work as an opportunity that you might glorify God, that you might worship Him through it? How will that change the way that you work if you see it as an opportunity to worship God? I want to I want to finish by looking just practically. How, so how is the gospel? We've talked a lot about kind of these big ideas. So how does this practically flush out, right? What practical difference does this make in how I show up at my nine to five? And so I want to look at three different jobs. I want to look at higher education. So if you're a teacher, I want to look at teaching. Um, I want to look at if you're retired, how the gospel should inform uh, your work or what you do as a retired person. Then I want to talk about how the gospel should inform those that do labor, those that work um, on construction or yard work or um, do skilled trade. So first, let's, uh, let's look at how does the gospel practically affect education. Uh, well, the gospel affects education in that it shows that that education is, an, is not an end in itself, but instead education is meant to point beyond itself to something else. Education can often be an idol that people sacrifice their lives upon in hopes that it will deliver the perfect job, the perfect income, the perfect house, spouse, and life in the future. Many have forsaken God for the sake of education because they think that it will give them a better future and will bring more satisfaction than God can. Um, in fact, uh, yeah. In fact, C.S. Lewis uh, said, "Education without values, as useful as it is, seems to make a man a more clever devil." What it means is that that education, as an end in itself, doesn't change human nature, right? That you can you can fill, and we I mean we've seen this. Look at World War II. I mean, look at different areas in our society. You can education, and education is important. Education is valuable. It is. It is. It matters. But it, education will ultimately not solve this world's problems, and will not solve the problem of the human heart. That education will simply give tools, and whatever the person's character is, they will use those tools for ill, for ill, or for good. So. How do we show the limits of education and point to uh, a relationship with Christ when we can't share the gospel, right? You're an educator you're saying, that's great. I realize that, you know, education can't save people, that it ultimately can't change. But how do, I, how do I share the gospel when I can't share the gospel? You know, how can I tell people about Jesus when I'm not technically allowed to, to tell people about Jesus? And so I, I would say, if you're abiding in Christ, if you have a vibrant, intimate relationship with him, you're going to demonstrate a contentment, a satisfaction, a joy in your life that will lead people to ask questions. They will want to know why is it that you approach your family like this? Why is it that you approach money or relationships? Why do you approach conflict in this way? You will have a satisfaction and joy that will lead people to ask questions and will open up avenues for the gospel. And the second really practical way is pray. And when your students are taking tests, walk and quietly pray over them. When you're grading their papers... Pray over their names. Ask that God would would move in them. Pray and ask God to move to save 
that you know that ultimately education isn't their biggest ill, that they need Jesus. And the last thing is use your influence to help guide them in the places where they're going to be influenced by Christ. If you know people or situations or clubs that you can help guide people to, use the influence that you have to help guide people to Christ, whatever that looks like, however you can. So a, a next, another real practical way that the gospel affects education is that you should, in your teaching, you should be creating relationships of love. We believe that we are saved by a love relationship with God. That while God is our authority, while God has ultimate authority over us, he demonstrates his authority through serving and knowing us. Right? That God knows our name, that he's intimate and he's personal with us. And so what this means is that when you're teaching, when you're going about the classroom, that you use your authority to serve and to build up that your students. Find ways in which you are to know them. Now, we're not going to be able to know everybody. Do you, do you have a desire to know your students? Do you want to know their name, what they're struggling with, what's going on, what their hopes and dreams are? Do you know the people around you? And listen, whether this is for education or whether it's your coworkers and you're, you're not a, a teacher, do you want to know and to build a relationship in a culture where relationship is valued and, and love is demonstrated, a place where there's safety and where there's grace and there's care? This is a practical way that you might demonstrate the gospel, that your, the gospel should affect your work differently and that you value relationships and you value love and you value intimacy and knowing and being known by others. Um, another way is that the gospel should affect how you see and encourage people. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What it means is that as a Christian, the way that we see people and the way that we see this world has been changed. Now, how is it that God sees you? How is it that God has treated you? In the gospel, we believe that God, instead of calling out our wickedness, our depravity, instead chose to call out and call us loved and blameless and holy to be adopted as his sons and his daughters. What this means is that we now are able to see the best in people, that we are able to call out and to encourage and so it means that even the most difficult student, even the most difficult coworker, you're able to strain, you're able to see God's image. You're able to see and call out the best. And so it means as Christians, we are determined, determined to find the best in people. That we are determined to call out and to encourage rather than to tear down. And so we are adamant about knowing and loving and about encouraging and building up people and seeing what God sees, remembering how he sees us. And man, for some of you, maybe this is just a really freeing thing. I want to stop here. How do you think that God sees you? How do you think that God interacts with you? Because so often we have broken parents and, and broken paradigms, and so we constantly think that God only interacts with us through discipline. That God's constantly just rebuking, and, and, uh, and, and, and really we have this idea of this angry father. And so what we need to understand is that while God does discipline, he disciplines out of love, that God speaks words of encouragement and grace over you. For only when we are able to understand that God has spoken to us in, in words that you are my beloved son and who I'm well pleased, that when we're in Christ, he says that of us. Only when we see that the words that God has spoken to us will we be able to speak words of life to others. The reason we don't speak words of life to others is because we are not believing or receiving the words of life that God has spoken to us. And we need to understand that and let that set us free that we might be able to speak words of life and healing to other people. So... How, how does the gospel affect um, retired living? 
So uh, the 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 American culture teaches that you've worked your job, you've put in your time, and therefore you're done. Life's about you. Kick back, relax, enjoy, get seashells. You know, like make make life whatever you want to make life about. It's yours. What is what does the gospel say about that? Well, we have some pretty stern words from Jesus because um, he says kind of the exact opposite. Uh, Jesus says in, in Luke nine twenty three through twenty five, he says, "If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul?" Now, hear me. The scriptures talk about that there's a time where you set aside a certain kind of work. Even as priests, when they were 50, they turned and they had a different calling, a different way that they expressed it. And so the idea that you've come to an age or you've come to a moment at which you set aside certain work is, isn't wrong, isn't bad. But the idea in which now my life is mine and I get to decide what I do with it and how I operate is unbiblical and is wrong. Because your life isn't you. Hope is that we belong to Jesus Christ in life and death. God has freed you up from one vocation and one area of influence to give you another. And so I'd ask, where is it that God is calling you to give your life away to? Where is it that God is, man, because God has given you wisdom, he's given you insight, he's given you experience in life. Where is it that God would use that to pour in and to invest and to give to others? Where is it that you can use that to disciple and to build up the next generation? Where are you practically giving your life away For life is found not in when we keep it, but life is found in when we give it joyfully unto others. The gospel affects retired living. It says that life isn't about you, but instead God will use your gifts, your abilities, your passions, your desires. He'll use them to selflessly serve others for his glory. So last, how does the the gospel affect labor? How does it affect those that are in skilled trade? Um, The gospel is that God didn't give us half of his best, but instead God gave us all of himself. God gave us his best. God gave us and produced excellence. God gave us Christ. If he gave us Christ, he will not hold back his hand from giving us every good thing. And so the gospel affects those that work in school labor because it says that do what you do unto the Lord with excellence. It means that you are to go above and beyond to make sure that what you've done is done well. Means you don't cut corners. It means you don't skip out on taxes. It means that you pay insurance. It means that you communicate with your workers and you take good care of them. And so practically, we are to create things that demonstrate God's workmanship. We are His workmanship. Right? And, and Jesus takes prized possession of it and He is careful and He's methodical and He's thoughtful in how He approaches it. And so too, when we build things, whether you're constructing a house or whether you're mowing a lawn, you're to do it with a mindset of excellence, saying, how can I do this to the glory of God? How can I do this in a way that demonstrates His beauty, His holiness, His excellence? And so we are to work hard and diligently, faithfully unto God to demonstrate His excellence. As Ecclesiastes 9.10, it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. So I want to conclude and end with understanding that there's a work underneath our work. As we go in, and, and Colin's going to talk about rest in the next couple weeks, um, we need to understand that there's, there's a work underneath our work. 
right? And the work underneath our work is that oftentimes we use work to find our identity, our meaning, our purpose. And so even in our work, it is it seems vain, it's striving. And only when we understand the work that God has done for us in Christ, only when we understand that our work is a gift given by God and it's by grace that we are saved and that our identity isn't found in our work, but it's found in, in Christ's work, are then we able to work with a sense of peace. We're able to work with a sense of, of hope and of joy because our work is not what identifies us. Instead, Christ identifies us. And so I want to right now ask you that you guys would just grab a 3 by 5 card. Will you go ahead, whatever we just grab a, a 3 by 5 card? Um, the Bible talks about uh, and, and has this idea of commissioning. And, and to commission means that you are sending someone out on a task or on a purpose that they have been called to by God. So you, you look at Paul. Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church as they were going on their missionary trips, right? And what the church is, the church recognized the church recognized that they were called by God to go and to spread the gospel where they were called to, to go. And so they went on this missionary trip, and the church recognized it and said, we want to partner with you. We want to get behind you. We want to encourage you and support you in your full-time ministry, in your calling where God has led you to. And so what I want to ask is, is have you considered your work as a ministry? Have you considered that you are a missionary in where you work? If so, what does that look like for you? How does the gospel practically guide and affect the way that you work, the way that you interact with others? And so what, what I want to ask is, um, my email address should be up here. Um, and I want us to, the, the thing I don't want, I don't want everybody just to stand up. So um, I want, if you, have, if you feel convicted and if you feel the Lord calling you to, and you really do want to see, uh, and you would say, yes, Trevor, I want to be prayed for, I want to be commissioned um, to see my work as ministry, to see my work as mission, then I'd ask that you stand. But in standing, what I would ask that you do is that I want you to think through those things. I want you to flush out how the gospel practically informs your work and what does it mean that your work is a ministry. And I would love to hear. This is simply just for me to, and, and for the staff just to pray over and to see how is it we can partner with you in, in seeing your work as ministry. And so if, if you would, I want to just pray. And then if you feel the Lord calling you, I'd ask if you want to be commissioned to, uh, to stand and the, and then in standing, just to to make a mental note and to say, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna look, I'm gonna email Trevor, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this next week, and I'm gonna pray and ask God that He would show me what it means that my work would be a ministry unto God. And here are some practical ways that the gospel affects my work. Um, and just just shoot those over to me in an email, and I would love I'd love to hear, I love the dialogue with you about what that looks like. Um, now, mind you, if everybody does that, which I would hope it might take a little bit. So if emails aren't answered like, like on the dot, um, please show me grace. Um, but I would love to, I would love to partner, um, and we would love to pray, um, for you. So, um, let's pray. Father, just pray over, uh, each person in this, in this room, God. Um, those that, uh, those that know and already sense that your spirit is, is calling them to see their work as more than just a means to get a paycheck or that want to partner with you in, in redeeming and restoring this world, God. I pray that, that, you would, um, that you would lead them to take ownership of that, God, that you would lead them to stand, to proclaim that they are going to see their job as a, a means of, of ministry, a means of proclaiming the gospel, both in, in their words as well as their deeds. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are already, like, you go before us and you prepare our hearts and our minds. And so we love you, Christ. Let's hear me pray. Amen.